All right, we are in the book of Romans. We're in lesson six, and it is simply titled The Jews' Day in Court. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 3, 8. Paul presents God's case against the Jews. What I want to do is tell you what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> uh, Lord willing, tell it to you, and then at the end, to come back and summarize. The outline I'm using today, I can actually fill in your minds to help you see what we're going to see. Five basic points that I see in this passage. Number one, in Paul's case against the Jews, he will first cover what are their privileges. They are in a privileged position. And there are two things. They themselves, they're as far as their privileges, and in comparison to us as Gentiles, they are blessed by God. Number two, but what about their practices? Hypocrisy and blasphemy are the two charges that Paul makes against the Jew. Thirdly, their position before God, the wrong use of rituals and the right use of rituals. Rituals are not the problem. It's how we use them, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Number four, you have to understand the Jewish mindset at the time of Christ and to some degree today to understand when you are witnessing to a Jewish person and telling them about the need for Jesus Christ. You have to understand the way they see themselves as the seed from God, that they've been given the scriptures. They've been given a symbol that indicates that they are God's chosen people and they're special in his sight. And they were promised the Savior. And so they see themselves as already being in the community of faith and already being saved. I grew up Roman Catholic, so I understand that. And as we talk in a few minutes, if you did too, you know that as you grew up, you thought, I'm fine. I'm definitely going to heaven. I'm Catholic. I mean, who doesn't go to heaven who knows about the Pope? But then you have to understand, and this is the weirdest part of it in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. They're polemic, or that is, their argument against God. When they're shown to be guilty, Paul indicates three things that he thinks they're going to say. Number one, we're God's chosen people. We cannot possibly be condemned. B, God isn't faithful to his promises. He told us we were going to be his people. How can he now throw us away? And thirdly, God can't righteously judge because he has a conflict of interest. Every time that we sin and we look bad, he gets to rescue us and look great. You're like, no, they didn't believe that. Paul will say that they did. Paul's Jewish. He knows the three arguments they will give to say, hey, we're, we're good. We're good here. So that's the outline of what we're going to look at. So let's start in, in verses 17 to 20, of their privileges, the Jewish position of privilege 2,000 years ago. Verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These are not necessarily bad things. Paul's going to start out and say, you're very privileged, because he himself, as a Jew, would say, I'm incredibly privileged with these wonderful things. I've listed them in a little bit different category under A, of the Jews themselves. But if you bear the name Jew, well, the name Jew comes from Judah, right? From which the Messiah is coming from that tribe. And if you bear that name, you are someone who has been given the oracles of God. You've been given the promises of the Messiah. You've been given the law. You've been given the temple. You've been given the Holy of Holies. You've been given miracles that you were given the opportunity. You came out of Egypt, the stories of God's deliverance. You've grown up in this environment where the Torah was given to you. You had the very words of God in front of you. It's like being a Christian. 
right? They had everything. They had every privilege given to them. So he says, now when he says if, it's the class of condition that means sense. Not if you have these things, but if this is true of you, Paul's making a court case, and he's talking to the imaginary Jewish person of his day that he knows what the conversation's going to look like. And so Paul's saying, so if this is true of you, anybody remember Columbo? Right? So, uh, just one more question, you know? That's kind of where he's going with this, right? He's like, if this is true of you, since it is, and you bear this name, right? Right. And you rely on the law? Now, don't assume that he means rely on the law to be saved here. Uh, that is true, but they relied on the law in a good way. Just like a Christian relies on the scriptures. They rely on the word of God to do its work, to be true, the promises to come forth. Thirdly, and you boast in God. We know him. He delivered us. The book of Psalms. The Ascension Psalms. All, we boast in God's name. Look what he's done for us. And Paul says, and, and also since you know his will, right? Oh, yeah. We know God's moral will for our lives. It's completely true and clear what we should do. And you approve the things that are essential? You, you, you fundamentally agree with the doctrine of the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. You, you agree with the pictures of Christ in the, in the temple worship? Oh, yeah. And the symbols of the Sabbath? Oh, yeah. We agree with the essential doctrinal statement of Hope Bible Church. <laughs> and you've been instructed from the law. You can see Paul as the prosecutor and the person, the Jewish person he's talking to in the witness box. He's just like, I just want to make sure the jury knows who you are. Right? What are your credentials again? Go through all these. Now, who in this case is in the jury box, if you will? It's the Ten Commandments. Now, Paul's case against the Gentiles, against the moralists that we've talked about, and now here against the Jew, this is not the courtroom that we will see in eternity. Paul's not putting them in front of the court, the bar of God's final justice. God is putting them in the temporal justice of God and saying this, if you're Jewish and you have all these things true of you, but you yourself break the law, you will be treated like someone who broke the law. You will not be treated special because you're Jewish. But the beauty of this book of Romans is he goes on to say, you can get saved. This is God's temporal courtroom to be put in front of the Ten Commandments and found to be guilty. You're not hopeless in this life if you turn to Jesus Christ. But there will be a court date in which there is no, there's no getting out of that. So my little box to the right at the bottom of page one, and I'll slow the process down here. There are three things that are true of religious hypocrites. This is essentially, I think, a summary of what Paul would say. That the religious hypocrite is definite about their privileges. That's me, right there. That's how I'm rolling. They're duplicitous about their practices. Yeah, I'm against that. But I do that. And they're in denial about their position before God. That's the whole point of being religious hypocrite. They think they're fine. Now let me, let me stop there and just say pastorally, because last week about the moralist. Um... It is, again, about the nature of how much revelation we have received. And just a quick review, especially if you were not here last week. Paul's talked about the Gentile, the moralist, who's relying on conscience, which could be a Jew or a Gentile, and today, the Jew. And they've all been given more revelation than the other person. Again, this is all of creation. They can see there is a God, they're without excuse. The moralist is without excuse because they've been given a conscience. And then the Jew is without excuse because they have the content of Holy Scripture. But then we have to put ourselves here because I'm not talking to one person in this room who was alive 
when Paul wrote the book of Romans. Now, if you were, please come see me after five. I want you to go with Carla and I on our next vacation and hear about that. Okay? But I'm talking to people right here, and we are Christians, that is, professing Christians. And, of course, we have been given so much because we have Christ and all the Bible. And so we stand in this line of where Paul's concerned would be, were he here today, he would just simply take the book of Romans, I believe, a few more words to say, now I am talking to all of us, right? Including myself, that we are privileged beyond measure. And so we shouldn't just look to the religious hypocrite, but look to ourselves and make sure. It's not hypocritical to be a Christian who, I'm still on page one, but you can, page two is just part of my, New Hampshire story. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but page one, I'm simply just saying, it's possible to be a Christian and not be a hypocrite, because as long as you don't claim, I'm sinless, or I'm, I'm perfect, or I'm going to heaven because of my good works, you're not a hypocrite. Uh, Romans chapter seven is going to take us there, and where Paul says, the things I want to do, I, I don't always do those. And the things I don't want to do, I sometimes do those not hypocritical to sin because God never promised in this life we'd stop sinning. What's hypocritical is to say I'm not one of those people who sins. And so we must look at ourselves and are we overly definite about our privileges to the degree that we're duplicitous about their practice and denial of our position. Page two. I've simply uh, made two almost unreadable little charts. To compare the Jew of Jesus Jesus and Paul's time with our own contemporary being a Christian. At the top, Paul has said again these six things. If you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve the things that are are essential. You're instructed out of the law and you're confident that you're a guide, a light, a corrector, and a teacher. We are here in this generation to help these poor slobs in the Baltimore, D.C. area who are not as enlightened as our wonderful selves are. Or are we just wicked sinners that God has privileged and saved? And as long as we point to Jesus and not to ourselves in all of this, then God will use us. So in comparison to the Gentiles, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. What's Paul's point? Well, those aren't wrong. What was the Jewish person supposed to do? They were supposed to be a witness. God made Israel to be a witness of the glory of God and the promise of the coming Messiah. That's why they were there. They weren't there to keep it to themselves, and they weren't special just by being Jewish. (coughs) though they had special promises given to them. And the parallel on my unreadable chart here, to me, is the privileges of being a Christian. We bear the name Christian. We rely on the gospel. We boast in Christ. We know his will. We approve the things that are essential. And we are instructed out of the whole Bible. What's Paul's point to us? What's Paul's point to the, to the Jew? You have everything you need, and what you were supposed to be is a witness. Guess what? Same for us. We're supposed to be a witness. We're supposed to be picturing, but instead, it is possible in our age to do what the Jew did in the second century or first century, and to be arrogant. I just want to say, I said early about growing up Roman Catholic, um, I was sure I was fine until I was 18. You know, uh, people would talk about sin. People would talk about things. I'm I'm good. I'm good. We got that covered. I was there. We did the wafer. I did the whole thing. I don't even know the seven sacraments, but I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm good. You know, because every Roman Catholic <clears throat> knows that you get graded on a curve. Okay. And uh, just quick, one more time. How many of you grew up Catholic? I just want to make sure. Okay. I need to do this really quickly, because if you didn't grow up Catholic, 
you need to understand the mentality of the Roman Catholic today so that you can, in picture, understand the mentality of a Jew 2,000 years ago. Let me help. In order to get saved in Roman Catholicism, you have to get your cup filled up enough with righteous juice. Okay? When it gets to a certain point, you don't know where the, where the point is. You don't know where it is. You'll never know in this life if you're saved. But God knows, and you have to have it filled to a certain cup so you can go to heaven. Good works, righteousness. Okay? Merit. Let's just use that word, merit. Now, you can also go to purgatory, and you can also go to hell. Now, as a Roman Catholic, most of us, as I said last week, did not think we were going to heaven. Most Catholics don't. They think, I hope I do. But there's always purgatory. Now, purgatory is a place where if you don't have enough merit in your merit cup, you can go there and you can have your bad works burned away. It's purging purgatory. It's low-level hell, right, where there's, there's warmth and all that, but it only burns off the bad stuff, okay? Right? It doesn't actually burn you the same way. So you can get rid of your bad stuff. And the other cool thing about it is, while you're in purgatory, people can do stuff for you. Oh, yeah. The best part, people can do good works on your behalf. Oh, they can put merit in the cup for you from doing a number of things. Who can do that? Well, Jesus, Mary, the saints, through work. Go ahead, who used the word? Thank you. Indulgences. Light candles. That's right. Indulgences are, are, well, I'll just go. It's merit given to the poor sinner who's a Catholic by decree of the Pope and then others through it in which you do acts of merit so that for your own cup and for the cup of others. And so, Jesus did all he could. He put as much merit out there as he could. But then Mary will now help you and get merit in your cup if you worship and encourage her. And then the saints who all die. What's the deal with the saints? Well, you get, you get called a saint for a number of reasons. You supposedly did a miracle and you did all these wonderful things. But they have a thing called supererogation, okay, where their cup was so full of merit. It's like the froth on a root beer. <laughs> they had so much merit in the cup that they were able, when they died, to leave a balance. Mother Teresa. Right. <laughs> right? So they leave a, what's the deal with the saints? Why do people worship or pray to the saints or whatever or venerate the saints? Because the saints have merit juice. Okay? So all of this goes into the big pool of merit called the treasury of merit. You guys ever seen a Roman Catholic, I mean the the Reformation movie? This is all of what's going on. So long story short, the treasury of merit is where all the merit of Jesus, Mary, and the saints is stored. It's, it's got a lot of merit in there. The only person alive who can regulate the way the merit is distributed is the Pope. Not by himself, but he, those decrees, those things that they assign are ways to get merit out of here. And those are like faucets. And there's seven faucets out of the pool of merit. What are those called? The sacraments. Now, nobody can use all seven because one of them requires you to be married and the other one requires you to be a priest. Okay, so there's only six for the poor sinners, right? Yeah. But the point is, okay, long story short and how it relates to the Jewish problem. A person who grew up Roman Catholic who understood most of this would understand this. I can't actually go to hell as a Catholic. Now, now, if you grew up Catholic, we can have a long conversation. But Catholics pretty much know, unless I become Hitler, and I deny the faith, and I never... Okay, you can almost not go to hell as a Catholic. Even a bad Catholic can end up at the lowest resource of purgatory, 
for a billion years burning off the bad stuff, as long as other people are paying for it. So alive Catholics can do merit, get merit juice out of here and put it in your cup through buying an indulgence or doing good works. So Catholics think, I'm covered by the system. I'm insured. I'm in a program where you don't have that happen to you. This is the bad side, or you get to go, and the system covers it. And there's just no way. I don't have to worry about how bad I am. I have to worry about how much merit I'm going to get. That's why there was a reformation. When Luther, <laughs> Luther wrote the 95 Thesis, it was against this system, the indulgence system, in which he wrote 95 reasons you shouldn't do this. Okay. Why do I say all that? Because the Jew is absolutely convinced they can't go to hell. And the Jew of Paul's time believed that their system would cover them because of their identity to what God had promised them. It's the same as any false religion, but really, Judaism and Catholicism are almost the two biggest users of the system approach. Mr. Brown, what were you going to say? Uh, when I was growing up Catholic and I came to realize that this was incorrect, one of the biggest things... Was... Wait, this is not correct? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> looking, especially like looking, when you look back at Hebrews and, and, and in the Old Testament, like if this was the case, if the system would... yeah take care of you, then why did the priest, the high priest, have to have a rope on him when he went in? That's right. Uh, Mr. Brown's saying, hey, why did the high priest have to have a rope on him if the system would take care of you, if this wasn't a real thing? When you, what the religious hypocrite is doing is believing in a system of works. A system of works. And the Jew did as well. And I'm just saying, it's easy to do that in Catholicism. But frankly, there are forms of Christian Protestantism where it almost appears merit-based, okay? And we must escape that at all means. So bottom of page two then, there were midpoint, their practices. You see we've talked about their privileges, Paul's point about their practices. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that one shall not steal, or one that one shall not steal. Do you steal? You who say that, one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. I picked up some quotes um, that might help us from Judaism. And uh, here, here they are in this box. God loves Israel alone of all the nations. God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. Abraham sits beside the gates of hell and does not permit any wicked, read wicked, read wicked Israelite to go through. Any wicked Israelite Abraham will keep out of hell. Now, look, I just spent a weekend in New England where everything's wicked cold. <laughs> wicked good. But Paul, uh, but this writing of a rabbinic nature, this is a common belief 2,000 years ago. I'm taking these quotes from the rabbinic literature just around the time of Christ and the first century. What's the point of it? Well, think of Luke 16. Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man who die. And they go to Abraham's bosom, the place of waiting for the righteous dead, right? And then we've talked about this story a couple times in here. But the man is crying across to Abraham and saying basically, hey, can you do something here? And Abraham's saying, hey, I don't run the place. I'm not what you think. Uh, to get in here, it's an act of God, and you have to believe the Bible, because he says they have Moses and the prophets. They've got a Bible. So that's all. You, this is all about God and the Bible. This is not about knowing Abraham. Abraham is talking to a Jew who's across the divide in Luke 16 and saying, you cannot come over here. And so that blows up this sort of rabbinic teaching. And so at the bottom of that little box, I just simply say, when Justin Martyr from the early church, second century, was arguing with the Jews in the dialogue of Trypho, the Jews said this, 
They who are of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, still share in the eternal kingdom. Now, being Jewish and being Roman Catholic are different in one primary reason, a way, and that is the difference between being born into an ethnic community and being born into a religious belief community. Yeah, Carla? The reporter has come out. Oh, cool. The other one. You put your rags in. <laughs> An act of God. <laughs> you know, once in a while when you're teaching and you're being recorded, uh, thank you, Carla, uh, you find out that, oh, the machine didn't work, you know? And so people come up and go, Dave, I've heard you teach for 10 years. That was the best message you ever gave. I can't wait to hand that to my friends. I'm like, I only get one good message. That was it. All the rest were schmutz, but that was a good one. And then you find out it didn't get recorded. I love it. So whatever I just said, just remember it or just write it down or forget it. All right, page three. So what are the two things that Paul, on page three, Paul has told us their practices and that is, they claim to be teachers, etc., but they themselves break the law. And so it's hypocrisy, obviously, and blasphemy. Let's look quickly at that. I am using again from last week this one little section on top of page three, because uh, I wrote it, and I felt I went through it too fast, and here we go. I get a blast from it. Hypocrisy is erecting a false life on the outside while living another way on the inside. It is to pretend to be other than we are. For the professing Christian, it's a pretending to have the fruit without actually having the root. It's doing religion without a relationship. It's the duplicity of having a noticeably different public and private practice of a proclaimed faith. Often the sins of pride and judgmentalism accompany the sin of hypocrisy as they really are two sides of the same coin. Pride is the undue commendation, as I said last week, of oneself, while judgmentalism is the undue condemnation of others. Pride admits no personal wrong while judgmentalism attaches a final verdict to the faults of others. Proud, judgmental people are usually legalistic and or moralistic. They turn their religion into a means of justifying their own sins and faults through the invention of a virtual moral accounting ledger. By means of this ledger, or the cup of merit, they are able to ascertain everyone else's spiritual score. As you would expect, their score is usually considerably higher than everyone else's, right? And if the ledger were a set of scales, then the proud and judgmental person would see their sins as lighter, and then on another scale, their righteousness as weightier than other people. So how is it that the sins of the Jews blaspheme the name of God among the Gentiles? Let me just ask a very simple question. I'd love audience response on this question. How does a hypocritical Christian, or then how would a hypocritical Jew, bring blasphemy on God's name among other people? What are ways that that would happen? Not living, not living out what you're teaching. That's right. That's right. You're teaching it. It's all here, but it's not here. So people see there's a disconnect. Yeah, Julie. They, they will then judge themselves against you and say, you're no different than the rest of the world. You're no different than I am. So why? Exactly. Julie's point is, um, if they see you at the work or wherever, I'm extrapolating, and they see that you're big mouth about Jesus, but you don't do any different than they do, then they're like, why do I need Jesus, right? Why do I need what you're... I don't need that. You're just like me. Yeah, Erica? They also get a false view of who God is. They get a false view of who God is, right? God's got a lower standard. He's letting everybody in. Um, yeah. Anybody else? Uh, yeah. They don't do just like you do. They spout about Jesus and God, and they actually do worse at work. They shirk their duties. Or yes, they do other that's things. right. That's right. And when... And, you know, once in a while, if you Google, like, Christian insurance company or Christian auto mechanic or Christian whatever, and you go there and you get ripped off, you're always like, you're like, man, what's the deal? They can use the name Jesus. Um, I may have told this story early on, but I'm old enough now where I get a mulligan. 
Um, and that is my brother John and I, when he was not a Christian, he was with me when I was evangelizing at a youth retreat or a youth event. And my brother John had come along. He was going to help with some of the physical labor and the stuff, but he was not a believer in Christ. And he was like, no, nah, no, thank you. And we had a young man come up to me at the end of the event and he was talking to me and I was witnessing to him and he said, you know what, I don't want to become a Christian or I don't believe in that because Christians are all hypocrites. And my brother asked him a question. I was like, he started witnessing to this guy. But John said, uh, hey, do you ever go to the grocery store? And the guy's like, yeah. He goes, why? Well, I have a need. He said, are there hypocrites at the grocery store? Yeah, but you still go. Yeah. But you don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites. And he, then he asked him, you ever go to the doctor? <laughs> like, yes. He's like, do you ever think some of those doctors might be hypocrites? Yeah. Why do you go? I have a need. He said, you have a need for God. You need to go to church. And I was looking at my brother. I was like, you need to get saved. <laughs> <laughs> and in God's grace, God saved my brother and he became quite a witness for Christ. Well, at the bottom of this page and the top of the next is probably in the New Testament the most straightforward, um, straightforward arguments against hypocrisy. It is, of course, the woes given to the Pharisees by Jesus, and it's lengthy. I usually try not to do a whole page of, of verses, but I'm going to do that on page 3 and following. From the book of Matthew, But they do all their deeds to be notified, noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassel of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called Rabboni by men. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Let me stop there for a second. Jesus had just read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> This is so important. This is the most loving thing we can do to someone who's a religious hypocrite. Um, it's not loving to say, hey, you're good, but what Jesus did. All right, back to here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. That's what it's like being a Roman Catholic. 
you celebrate the saints. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. No way. We're good guys. So you testify against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And then Jesus goes on. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Uh, Jesus is building that up to a greater revelation motif here. All those people, prophets, who were killed by your ancestors is nothing compared to your rejection of God in the flesh. You rejected the prophets who were his spokesmen. Now you are, you are rejecting the one who sent the prophets. And you will suffer a greater judgment. Verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That was 70 AD, right? The destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is talking to them about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A final warning to a generation of hypocrites. And then they took Jesus on that Friday, and they put him to death on the cross, But beforehand, they decided they'd rather have Barabbas, and they yelled out, may his blood be on on us and on our children's children. They killed the God-man. They rejected the Messiah, and they rejected the entire Old Testament at that point. This is what it was all leading up to, right? Let his blood be on us and our children's children. Um, what we're going to get into in the next few pages is we're going to begin to look at a little more deeply some of the questions that arise about the Jewish person today. Uh, Is the Jewish person today okay? Uh, No, but there are Christians who I talk to who feel that Jewish people, hey, if you just leave them alone, they got the Bible, they'll be be okay. Or a second level. They just have to kind of add Jesus into their already existent thing. The the Messiah thing, you pour the Messiah juice inside of current Judaism and you're good. Third option, you're like, no, those are bad options. The third one I've seen the most of, and that is Jewish people joined by Gentiles in new forms of quote-unquote new covenant communities in which they're actually still keeping the law. And they've added Jesus the Messiah, and their, their words are something like this. He came to make it possible for us to obey the law. And I know that I went with a group from California to Brooklyn, New York. I led a group years ago, not years and years ago, but seven or eight years ago, to witness in Brooklyn and uh, to Jewish people And we didn't know that that Christian organization, quote-unquote Christian, was teaching that until we got there. And it was basically, hey, convert to Jesus as your Messiah so that he will give you the grace to obey the law. And it kind of was like dot, dot, dot for your righteousness. Many of the Messianic communities today have flipped this over. Are Jews okay? Didn't Didn't Paul say, and thus all Israel will be saved? Uh, aren't all Israelites going to heaven eventually, just like all Catholics? All dogs go to heaven. <laughs> I have two golden retrievers. I mean, aren't they going to heaven? Of course. All right. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope my golden retrievers are going to heaven. Okay. All right. Page four near the bottom. Their position before God then. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. 
But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. No. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. The doctrine of circumcision in the Old Testament and the New, and its relationship here. Let me go through some of that and help you understand what Paul is trying to get us to understand. But in simplest fashion, if Paul was also talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, he would say this. The outward sign of the baptism you received, the water baptism, did not save you. And if a person who is not water baptized but attends your church and still obeys Jesus, don't you think that's more important to Jesus than you got water baptized but you still live like the devil? If you put it in those markers, you understand what Paul just said. Look, your circumcision, physical symbol on the male Jew, to designate that the Messiah came through the physical line of the Jewish nation, that symbol was what they thought is, hey, it's like saving. I have the symbol, therefore I am good with God. Just like baptism and the Lord's Supper today are trusted, especially baptism in many Christian communities, you're not saved unless you're water baptized, is what they would say. All right. The wrong use of ritual, verse 25. The Jew was relying on the law and relying on their supposed obedience to the law to justify them before God. This is a misunderstanding and misuse of the nature and purpose of the law. Since no one can actually obey the law, the Jews began to lower the standards of the law by grading on a curve. The law was meant to bring the knowledge of sin and the need for a savior. Paul, in all of his preaching and writings, has constantly taught justification by faith and not by works. He taught that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And circumcision is the sign of the covenant made with Abraham, namely the promise of a coming Messiah and salvation by faith in him. All right, a quick review. Circumcision in the New Testament and the apostles talking about it. Physical circumcision was meant was merely meant to be an outward symbol of an inward reality of faith, Colossians 2. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of the heart? It goes along with the picture from Ezekiel 36. I'm going to cross metaphors, but it's this. In Ezekiel 36, it talks about the heart of stone being made into a heart of flesh. It is now open to God. Okay, there's an opening. This picture in the New Testament is the same thing. The circumcision of the heart is to remove the heart of stone, the heart, the heart that did not obey God, and open it to God's work in their life. That's the circumcision of the heart. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised, demonstrating that circumcision is only a symbol. Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Whoa, slow it down. We're getting to chapter 4 there, but Paul's point again is this. The guy you're trusting in to get you in heaven because he was circumcised, he got saved before he was circumcised. So circumcision didn't save him. It was a symbol that he was already right with God. That's Paul's argument. And then Paul opposed the Jews who were teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Stop it there. Again, parallel, Paul would be teaching that you do not have to be baptized to be saved. Galatians chapter 5. Yeah. Um, when you said think of circumcision in the New Testament, yes. it made me think, why then did Paul have Timothy circumcised? Was that 
to please the Jews? Or yes. What? No, not please the Jews. Paul didn't want to give offense unnecessarily. <clears throat> let me let me give the argument, man. <clears throat> man, I wish I hadn't smoked those camels this morning. <laughs> so, pardon me. <clears throat> a couple of you people are going to leave the class right now. <laughs> Anne's question, it's a good question, Anne. Uh, why did Paul have uh, uh, Timothy uh, circumcised in Jerusalem when he was there for one of the festivals? And Paul was totally against making circumcision anything part of salvation. But Paul also said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, and I'm all things to all men, so that I might win some. Paul doesn't say why he did it. My, my opinion is this. Paul was at a festival, and, and he didn't want to give offense to people unnecessarily, and he couldn't take Timothy into the buildings. Frankly, he's at the hospital to make a hospital call, and they require a mask. And he's like, Timothy, put a mask on. It's like, we don't have to put a mask on. No, you don't. You can go to heaven without a mask on, but you can't go in this building. And Paul was in Jerusalem at the time of a festival, and it was required that men be circumcised before they enter the buildings. And so he put a mask on so he could preach the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. James. Yeah. So Paul says here that Abraham became, he was saved before he was Tell us what the content of Abraham's faith was. Sure. And is it the same as the content of our faith now? Yeah. Or not? Yeah, good. I asked for this, right? Okay. <laughs> the question is what was Abraham, the content of saving faith for Abraham, and he was saved before the circumcision? Yes. Genesis 15, as you know, is where Abraham has the picture God shows him the stars. Do you believe that you're, gener- you're going to have that many offspring? And Messiah is going to come. Okay, he's going to come through you, through the line, which was promised to Abraham in chapter 12. You'll be a blessing to all nations. And so Abraham was promised this, and of course God was the only one who walked through the fire and gave the picture that you can't be saved through this, you have to just believe the promise. What what Romans 4 Paul talks about with, with Abraham is that he was saved by faith. Faith in what? The content that God told him. That you, through you, all the nations will be blessed. That through you... Uh, you'll have a land and a seed and a blessing, and there'll be a king who comes up through that. Abraham's content also increased after that, but the saving faith is in the Old Testament was the belief that whatever God said, to trust in that. But I believe, given some other passages, and I won't go on with that, that Abraham had an understanding there was a Messiah coming, and that in picture he knew that there was a Messiah there. Other dispensationalists would say, no, it was just the content of God saying you're going to have a lot of offspring, I think there's more to it than that. But it's always by faith, but the content is slightly different because Abraham did not know the name of Jesus, and he's looking forward to, he's on a credit card, and we're on a debit card. (laughs) Right? And Messiah's already paid everything, but he was looking forward to one who was going to credit to him because that's what Genesis 15, God says, and he credited to Abraham righteousness. And so... All of that must have been displayed in certain terms of that. I'm going to I'm going to move on, but great question, Henry. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, we're at bottom of page five, and just a little bit of background passages there. Galatians six: For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Read this: Neither is baptism anything. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For neither is baptism anything, nor unbaptism anything, but a new creation. Now, does that mean you shouldn't be baptized? No, we're commanded to be baptized. Uh, the male was to be uh, circumcised the eighth day in the nation of Israel. You should circumcise them back then, but don't trust in that. Hey, it's going to get better. <laughs> that that's my best stuff man (laughs) all right philippians chapter three beware of the dogs beware of the evil workers beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh and then galatians chapter two even peter got caught up in the hypocrisy for prior to the coming of certain men from james he used to eat with the gentiles listen he was going to rib fest. Yeah. He was like, 
world just changed. I'm all in on this. Going to rib fest with the Gentiles. They were having bands. Peter was all in on this. And then some guys came up from Jerusalem and were like, hanging with Gentiles now? All right. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Do you realize that some of those people who professed Christ at that party hadn't been baptized yet? They were saved two days ago and the bapt Yeah, the baptistry's broken. Okay? Okay. All right. We, I've alluded to it like 19 different ways, but page six will be a quick overview. But what are the four things that I think is important to understand that a Jewish perspective was? I've already said it in a number of different ways. Let me do it quickly. They saw themselves as the seed of Abraham and sons of Abraham. Genesis 22, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven saying, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as a sand which is on the seashore and you shall, you shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. John 8 then answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, have never been enslaved to anyone. Revisionism. Uh, you guys don't remember Egypt? <laughs> you know? Hello. Yeah, Babylon. Anybody remember Babylon? Right, okay. And they're all under Roman rule at that point. Hello for revisionism. They got all the textbooks and changed them. That's what they did. All right, never mind. All right. They were never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? Matthew 3. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. But I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. I'm going to skip Galatians chapter 3 there. Some of you will read it while I'm speaking. I put this little box down there, Christian home, Christian nation, Christian church, Christian friends. We're in the same ballpark. That doesn't, what I'm not talking about is you're all hypocrites. Uh, I hope I'm not a hypocrite. What I'm saying is we need to protect ourselves from that. Because we are so privileged, it would be easy to do what the Jew has done. All right, Galatians 3, this one I am reading, God's law. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, Paul says being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. Of course, he's not talking about the blurring of the lines between those, but rather no one has a head up or a foot up at the cross. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Hey, if you're a Gentile like me and you've come to Christ, then you're a child of Abraham. And you have equal status in terms of being saved. But don't make the mistake of thinking you're a child of Jacob or Israel. They're not the same. Israel and the church are not the same. When, we're, when we are saved, we're made children of Abraham. Um, Abraham wasn't Jewish. I mean, by, by definition, right, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who has 12 children, 12 tribes, and that's the beginning of Israel, the nation, and Israel is his other name. Uh, Abraham preceded that. He's from Ur of the Chaldees. He's from the hood. <laughs> All right? Abraham's just a dude, man. All right? From his descendants, eventually will come the nation of Israel. He doesn't know the nation of Israel. Abraham's like you. He's just a dude. Okay? Think about it. Symbol. Circumcision was the outward symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. And finally, the Savior. They were promised the Savior. All right. I've got... What? Even my own wife is leaving. <laughs> I've heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> All 
38 years of marriage and the whole time I was a pastor? She's like, I already heard that joke. <laughs> All right. Top of the page, they're polemic. Okay, this is the most important part, and I actually have time to cover it. So here we are. We've looked at what they have. They're, they're, we have their privileges, right? And their practice and their position before God and all those things. So Paul is now going to mimic them and answer for them as if he was talking to a Jewish person that day and saying, these are the three things you're going to say back to me. You will say, or won't you then say, three things when you come with this argument. Jewish person, you're not saved by the law. You've been hypocritical. You've blasphemed God. Therefore, you are going to be judged by the law, and you yourself will be in hell, just as Jesus said, unless you repent. Okay? This is now the response on the top of this page. Their polemic, verses 1 to 8. We're not guilty because God told us we were his chosen people. But there isn't any advantage to it, apparently. Verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Paul's not asking that himself. He's putting that as what a person would say. So what advantage is there? What was this whole Jewish thing about? We got ripped. We got robbed. This could have been so much better. Why didn't you just tell us it wasn't going to work out? So for 1,500 years, we're the Jews, and now we're not. Now you've got a Messiah and the Gentiles are in. We got ripped. What advantage then was there ever to being a Jew? Or what benefit of circumcision? Okay, so Paul, if that's the case, that doesn't get you to heaven, what was the point of all of this? Paul says, it was great in every respect. First of all, you're entrusted with the oracles of God. You knew exactly what God said. You've been entrusted. You were given these wonderful privileges. And you could have turned to the Messiah. So A, the Jews were blessed with the special revelation of the coming Messiah and all the clear prophecies of his first and second advent. Paul mentions three concepts in chapters 2 to 3. The law, the oracles of God, and circumcision. The law is the schoolmaster to bring him to Christ. The oracles of God is speaking about the special revelation about the Messiah and faith in him. And circumcision is the sign of the covenant made with Abraham, namely the promise of a coming Messiah and salvation in him. That wonderful thing that now looks like some sort of, like the top of a shark's fin swimming between creation and Christ, perhaps, is simply this, the diagram I gave up here of the levels of light. We're not guilty, he said, because God said we were his chosen people, but there's no advantage in that. This next point will address that. Number two, we're not guilty because God isn't faithful to his promises. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be, Paul says. Rather, let God be found true and every man be found a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let's go back. Don't, don't get away from this. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Yea, hath God said? So if Jews don't become believers, it puts a question mark, according to the Jewish argument, on the faithfulness of God. We're the chosen people. How's that not clear? The Jews believed that they could live any way they wanted and still have eternal life and God's blessing simply because they were born a Jew. They mistakenly believed that election was corporate. Namely, that God elected every Jew to salvation. Let me stop there. We won't get to election as a doctrine in its fullest sense to chapter 9. That's where Paul addresses the doctrine of election. Uh, actually, what we call the doctrine of election. But he will use the Greek word electos or eklektos, which means we say choice in election. In chapter 9, Paul starts chapter 9 by saying... He, revised, he comes back to this question on the Jews. He says, so did the word of God fail? God said, you're my people. You're my elect people. And now many of them don't believe. Did God's word fail? And so we're not able to address the whole thing now, but we're going to read this one short part of Romans 9 
And let me say in the most simple way, not because you're, you need it simple, but to be as clear as I can. When we get to Romans 9, Lord willing, if we're all alive and the rapture hasn't taken place, uh, we will deeply go into the doctrine of election because it's taught in three chapters there. But I have to front-end it here because Paul's addressing the question of, hey, if we don't believe, doesn't that show God was unfaithful because he said we were all elect? Here's what Paul says in Romans 9 regarding all of that. But it is not as though the word of God has failed because some Jews didn't believe. But they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. They're not all Israel who are Israel. Not everyone ethnically Jewish is going to be a believer. True Israel or true belief is what saves you, not your ethnicity. Not all Israel are Israel. What Israel is he talking about? Elect Israel. God chose within the larger nation of people some to be merciful to and save. But not everyone born in Israel will go to heaven. Guys, it's the same. Over to 2022 at Hope Bible Church. Not everyone who attends church gets to go to heaven because they attended church or they were professing Christians. And so the rest of the argument, simply, I can't do justice to election today. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul says? There's no injustice with God, is there? God's going to choose one and not another? That's not fair. Paul says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now verse 16, man, dig into that deeply in your life. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills. What about free will? That was a great movie. Free Willy? (laughs) Lost moment there. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, a metaphor for doing good works, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. For our point today, simply to say this, hang in there if you're not, you're like, that doesn't sound right to me, election, whatever. Uh, If you're at Hope Bible Church, you've been taught this, this is in the doctrinal statement, but that doesn't mean everyone adheres to that. And I just say, hang in there and let the book of Romans convince you, not Dave. Let the rest of the book of Romans take you to Romans 9, okay? And then then decipher all of that. But for our purpose today, to, to connect those, the purpose is simply this. Paul is making the argument, so you think being Jewish is going to get you in? No, it's not going to get you in. Only the elect will get in. And then page 8. We're not guilty because God is unjust to punish unrighteousness, since men's unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness. Furthermore, we are clearly not guilty because God's truth and glory are enhanced because of our unrighteousness. God shouldn't judge us, right? He should thank us for making him famous. Look at these verses. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unjust, is he? Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. He's saying, I'm making this as if I'm making this up. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? 
For if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, the condom, their condemnation is just. The Jews' defense against the charge that they are guilty is, our unbelief brings faithfulness into question, God's faithfulness, which Paul has addressed, and our unrighteousness brings God's righteousness into question. The Jewish argument is simple. If God is benefited by my sin, then he should recluse himself from being a judge since he will have a conflict of interest. Um, If God's wrath and justice and power and holiness are on display against sinners, then I've glorified God because some of his attributes have been brought to the forefront. So when I sin, God is now made known bigger. I'm doing him a favor. I simply say, by comparison, this is like a kidnapper trying to get off because a rescuer became famous due to their heroism. Or an arson trying to get off because a firefighter is rewarded for their effort in saving people. Or a murderer trying to get off because the attorney becomes known for their excellent prosecution of the case. Or a dictator trying to get off because the liberating general is decorated for his bravery. It's upside down, it's flipped, it's crazy. But do you see that that would be the argument Paul says they would make? So the Jews' unbelief is in regard to the promises of God as revealed in the oracles of God. I'm going to go to D and be be done. The Jewish problem is a prototype for all mankind. The Jews were guilty of disobeying God's law and revelation and guilty of rejecting the light given to them of God's remedy of the problem. All mankind of sin and rejected, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. But I would hint to next week by this. Romans 3, 9, the next verse, indicates this. Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty. But really, we have a bigger problem. And that is what sin has done to us in total depravity. So let's pray.